All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm very well, David. Hello to everyone. I hope everyone's had a safe, relaxing holiday. I know that many people have not. I've heard from people who were stranded in airports and uh, dealing with strange weather. So we hope everyone's cool or warm or both. Yeah. Yeah, for us it was really warm. Uh, we had an unseasonable, eighty-five degree heat spell during, <laughs> during Christmas. Uh, so that was it. Was very interesting to have all the trappings of Christmas, but none of the ambiance really. Well, <clears throat> you we're hearing from uh, somebody's uh, who's just been through his first Christmas. How did how did he go for the holiday? Did you put him in a big stocking and hang him from a mantle or anything like that? <laughs> well, we uh, we opened. He got a lot of presents from his grandmother. Oh, I can't uh, believe that! That just that surprises yeah. me enormously. <laughs> <laughs> which he uh, he seemed to like the wrapping paper more than the presents themselves, which is pretty standard. And he actually just uh, woke up from a nap, so he's uh, wiggling around trying to figure out life. But no, he had a great he had a great first Christmas. Excellent. Excellent. Of course, most of us don't remember ours, uh, but I think we do. I think we do. I subscribe to that idea that, that somehow we do. Uh, we certainly, I think, and this is one of our ongoing themes, we take in things at a deep sort of psychological, atmospheric level, you know, and I think that the good vibe is, uh, well, you can hear the good vibe. He's, he, he's, he's bringing the good vibe right now. Oh, yeah. Good on you, Cass. Yeah, he's uh, he's having a good time. He's uh, pull, pulling my headphones out and wriggling. Can you still hear me? I might have been cut off there. Hold on. I'm still here. Can you hear me yeah, now? Yeah, we got you. We got you. All right. Hold on. Sorry. All right. How about now? Yep. Yep. You You're all good. You're okay. all good. Okay. Cool. Cool. Sorry, folks. This is uh. This is part of the part of the deal. <laughs> we got a little man here who's wiggling, and he likes to pull out his daddy's headphones. It's a parenthood in progress. Yeah. Here, have some milk. Have some milk. <laughs> he's uh, he's got milk, and now he he'll eat apples and carrots and all sorts of stuff. But right now, we're just gonna do milk. But uh, you had a good one, Chris. Va good Vegas Christmas. Yeah, I did. You know, I have to say it wasn't sort of up to you know, the standards of pre-COVID. It's pretty quiet light-wise around here. I live in a neighborhood that has been pretty devoted to two holidays. Well, I guess you could sort of say New Year's, but certainly fireworks for 4th of July and Christmas lights mm -hmm. in the holiday season. And it is noticeably a bit more somber. I, I think that there isn't the radical uh, innovation and... Sometimes people put some real expense into it, but, but really there's this very strong neighborhood commitment to things. And I haven't done anything either, so I, I, don't, I don't have any stones to throw at anyone. But uh, where I'm moving to, Boulder City, I, I have seen a lot more festivity sort of directed energy, which I'm, I'm looking forward to. And I think next year when I'm in my new house, I am actually going to do Christmas lights for the first time in 20 years. So I'm, I'm excited about what, what the future is. I think for a lot of us, this last Christmas is kind of a, a, re, you know, a redo of the one before. Um, 
I did go out to dinner last night, and that was that was pretty good vibe. I mean, there were a lot, there were people around. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe always the the thing is, it's kind of the good vibe that we bring, rather than, you know, just thinking, well, there's going to be a bigger, you know, environmental rush of energy that we can draw on. I mean, that that's cool if that happens. I remember that New York used to be like that. You know, you could really kind of count on being sort of overwhelmed. And maybe that's not going to be the case anywhere anymore. You know, maybe we have to bring more of the party ourselves, you know? I think so. I think there's going to be a strict division between rural and uh, city areas. Judging from how uh, cities versus uh, the suburbs and, and the rural areas have reacted to COVID in general. I know with this latest Omicron wave, I, I know everybody who I know from, from New York seemed to be going into, you know, DEFCON 1 sort of back to where we were in 2020 and uh everybody here in oklahoma just you know just couldn't care less so it was kind of business as usual it was kind of back to christmas as a you know holiday family gathering our family gathering was huge everybody showed up some people with shots some without uh nobody just nobody really cares here and i think vegas might be a good example of a not necessarily an nyc but an urban area that has that kind of thought behind it. It's certainly more relaxed than many of our coastal cities. There's no doubt about that. And I think that is something that I've appreciated throughout this whole period, that it basically there's a kind of, uh, I don't mean political uh, libertarian idea, but I mean it more ideologically, just kind of live and let live and just just be cool and friendly. And it... it the, the the atmosphere's always been pretty good at street level here. And I think that it, it comes down to how open the restaurants are. And in this case, they were actually very crowded. So it was it was difficult to get in uh, to a place. Um, so all good, really. I think it's just, you know, it's important to, to bring our good mood with us every time we, you know, step outside our door. Mm-hmm. And maybe we should have always been thinking like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I I have really high hopes for how some of the country is going to go once all is said and done, and I have less high hopes for the other ones, but I'm very much moving into the new year. One of my resolutions is, as you said, to live and let live, and to attempt as much as I can to sort of abandon these petty ideological boundaries that we've all set up around each other, and this kind of false... uh, moralization that's become so so popular now so you know it's the realist take of this whole thing is that you know there are some places like for example new york that might never really quote unquote go back to normal you know new york uh london a lot of places in europe places in australia uh but you know that's how it goes that's just the way it is and i uh i don't think i'm really doing myself any favors by by mourning that too much. I agree. I don't think that, that, that mourning is the right attitude. And I, I, but I also think that we should just keep an open mind. I, I'm very sad, of course, about the direction that Australia has taken because I am a, uh, that's, I'm a citizen of that country as well as the Solomon Islands in America. I have a lot of friends there. I put a lot of my life there. And I do think the national character and, and cultural identity has been very challenged uh, over the last two years. But on the other hand, you know, they're tough people and, 
and New Yorkers define toughness. Um, New York has been written off so many times, <laughs> uh, and then they keep bouncing back. So we'll see. I, th- I think that we just got to keep an open mind and 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 stay on the case ourselves and our in our own lives, and maybe live a little bit quieter and closer to home and less virtually. You know. Yeah, no, absolutely. And New York City, like you said, it will always be New York. It's one of my favorite cities in the whole world, and it'll never not be that place. So, you know, but things change, and that's and that's that's totally fine. Chris, before we get too much further into the episode, would you mind giving me my my challenge for the day? Yes, I will. Yes, I will. And I remind listeners that David has also been given, we do do this just before we go on mic, but he has never any warning other than just a few seconds, really, of five words to use two throughout our session, a little bit of uh, sort of secret agent work to keep the mind working. It's a technique I really recommend if you're dealing in social situations Give yourself, you know, a little private challenge of some words to work in and make them interesting and difficult because if it, if you can apply yourself in real time, you will strengthen your mind. But on top of that, uh, each episode, uh, we give to David an imaginative challenge which takes different forms and he has not heard this at all before right now. Uh, he has to make a few sort of mental notes and then come back to us at the end of the episode with some kind of response, which he's done very well with. This is an interesting sort of, uh, it's a science challenge and it's a little bit of a Fortran. Charles Fort is one of our heroes, uh, the great sort of accumulator of anomalous uh, incidents and events around the world that don't fit into an obvious science framework and therefore perhaps challenge and maybe expand our notion of science. So that's been a theme that we've been looking at across all of the episodes. This is our 69th. So David's challenge this time is this. We've had of late, and and we hope this continues, you know, ongoing new information about the past, about human origins, about geographic uh, dispersal around the world. We now think that various people arrived in different parts of the world much earlier. We're, the whole program of understanding human beginnings is, is constantly changing, and we, we just keep hoping that new evidence will be found in parts of the world that have survived war and uh, you know environmental calamity, so we can keep getting new evidence. But the challenge here is previous technology. I want you to think, David, of a a sudden momentous discovery in some part of the world, and you'll need to uh, help us with that setting. You'll need to choose a location where this discovery is made. But what will be found uh, by a scientific group, and you're part of it for this exercise, is some aspect of technology that is completely outside any frame of reference that we have. We just don't believe that kind of technology was available to the people in question wherever you choose to place them. But you find something that is startling and that completely uh, revises our whole notion of human history. Okay? 
one discovery of some archaeological evidence of technology that is just simply timeline defying okay uh is okay. that clear that's totally clear and i want to throw out a real discovery that happened recently that i thought was really cool um archaeology one of archaeology.com's discoveries of the year for 2021 was 23,000 year old footprints discovered at white sands new mexico which uh, calls into question all the previously held human migratory patterns that we've had up to this point. So that was thought that was that cool. was on my mind. So thank you for mentioning that. That this is the kind of thing that I think mm -hmm. is so exciting, and is really upsetting a lot of paradigms that that desperately need to be upset, and and to be thoroughly interrogated in the light of emergent you know information like that, which is so exciting. So you're on the case. Good. Okay. Excellent. All right. So, Chris, what would you... Gus is curious about this. Uh, what would you like to talk about today? Okay. Well, I think we'll try to round off the year. This is our last episode before New Year's, and we're going to start with a kind of a new framework or a refined framework for the new year. And I thought maybe I would help listeners to understand where we've been and how we round things off and also uh, where we're going. Um, in the last episode, David introduced a, a simply wonderful phrase, a fricassee, a fricassee of coherence, which I think is a beautiful thing for us to aspire to. We all need more coherence and we're all faced with a lot of incoherence. So I thought I'd break that down first of all to say that we're looking at incoherence in terms of cognitive dissonance, which is, I think, a phrase that, that many listeners will be familiar with. It's two incredibly divergent, if not oppositional, if not fundamentally contradictory ideas or approaches uh, in, in, at one time. It's, it's a, a variation on Gregory Bateson's notion of the double bind. It, it's the psychological effect we're all familiar with, it, it sort of, it just breaks our head open, you know? It's, it's headache-inducing and, and somewhat dizzying, and it's very hard to resolve, but this is happening all the time. And I think it can be argued that the contemporary media almost specializes in this as a way of, of uh, well, as a marketing tool, frankly. Um, so we're going to be looking uh, in the new year at this schismatic thinking within culture, particularly American culture, but it applies generally to Western culture and really all the technology developed nations. Uh, because we're really, we are one global planetary community. So we're looking at schismatic thinking, uh, fundamental contradictions, mind bending and breaking incoherence that really needs to be looked at and, and retooled. And our, our hope with the segments coming up and with the special guests that we'll be introducing, we're gonna have a, a Zoom session each month with uh, a special guest. The writer, uh, Grant Walmack, is our first guest coming up uh, in January. We're gonna host those uh, at the end of, of every month. We'll record them at the start and then uh, 
feature the Zoom session live interview uh, at the end of every month. So there's a lot of cool things going on, but our thrust is how to heal, psychologically and magically heal, this tremendous sense of schismatic contradiction that is kind of the defining feature of, of our time now. Uh, that's our argument. Um, and I launched a, a kind of variation and an extension of that argument in our last episode, which is connecting to our ghost radio signal idea of the origins of culture, capital C. And the argument that I made was that we are actually living in one of the most magical, as in not necessarily, you know, I don't mean uh, bewitched, I don't mean uh, enchanted, I mean magically mm -hmm. directed eras in human history where invisible forces are acting upon us, intangible factors are having extremely tangible influences in terms of anxiety, depression, dissociation, and uh, oftentimes societal violence. So we're looking at a healing mechanism approach, a very positive, upbeat approach to the new year. Um, and we'll start off every episode looking at sort of uh, some fundamental schisms and contradictions of the week. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that there for the moment. I do have three examples of the kind of schismatic, contradictory, cognitive dissonance problems that we're talking about. I would like to mention them in this episode because they give some examples of, of where we're headed, but I personally don't think we, well, I don't want to really deal with them fully uh, in the future. I think they kind of speak for themselves, but they are sort of trail markers. So uh, do you okay. want to respond to what I've just laid down? And then I'll give <coughs> listeners these three examples just to help guide us all. There you go. That's perfect. I love Gus's timing. I love his timing. Oh gosh, I turned on Sesame Street, and I hope I hoped that was going to be the solution this episode. But uh, as you can tell from the the tone of that uh, yell, that's that's not a cry of sadness. That is a that is a yell of of rage. So we'll have to figure we'll figure something else out. But to respond to your point that you brought up there, I think that finding my personal New Year's resolutions, and I do do them because I find them effective. My resolution last year was to not drink alcohol. And so far, so good. There's still a few days left in the year, but I think I can make it at this good point. Good for you. Uh, thank you. My, my resolution for 2022 is actually to... This is much much more impossible a task than not drinking. It is to attempt as best as I can to decouple myself from tribal tribalistic ideology right i'm just any time that i find myself getting caught up in a kind of us versus them mentality i'm gonna you know take five try to reassess figure out how i can uh, kind of divest myself of those particular feelings and i think that really does tie into a, this kind of idea of coherence give me one second to pick this boy up <laughs> he is not having this. He says this is not okay. Um, hold on, give me a second. Let me let Daddy finish his thought. 
uh, I think that the 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 lack of coherence, the the evil demon that moves to fill that space, is our uh, our tribalistic ideologies that you can fall back on, right? And so I want to attempt to be as clear-headed as possible. I want to focus on getting signal out of all the noise. Uh, and I've been thinking a lot, I told you this on the phone before we started recording, but I've been thinking a lot about the phrase, uh, the war of all against all, which is where I kind of think many of us who are on social media find ourselves in which a bunch of people who perceive themselves to be the main character of social media uh, are constantly attempting to, um, to prove their own benevolence by adhering to tribalistic... Uh, really uh, just nonsense words, right? Uh, the word virtue signal gets thrown around a lot and it's sort of overused. But um, but the idea is that if you're really looking for signal out of all the noise, you have to find a way to get yourself to be clear-headed. Um, so that's my that's my commentary on, on what you said. But overall, I would say that I, I think it's just a really important skill that we have to actually practice. And my hope for the podcast in the coming year is that it can actually act as a place where I can practice that myself. I think that's very healthy. And this, uh, for listeners, this is a good example of what David and I mean by, by magical practice, which is embracing of uh, animist magic in an indigenous people's sense, occult magic in the more Western traditions, psychological magic in the Jungian tradition, uh, but it's something that we practice to try to retain and, and hopefully even grow psychological health. Um, David, I think you might let listeners know where that uh, phrase of the all against all, where that comes from and how you found that, because I think that's one of our reference points uh, as, a, as an author and a thinker. Um, yeah, yeah, it comes from William Burroughs. It's in Naked Lunch. It's a term that he uses there in one of the many great unhinged monologues, which is sort of the whole book, right? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I saw that phrase and I thought, oh, that is just so appropriate because if you think about modern discourse as an enormous battlefield with no real sides, right? But just every man for himself and the chaos that ensues from that. And you know, you'd, you'd have to imagine that some people would make little packs in the moment to sort of team up, maybe on the stronger people, maybe on the weaker people. But it's very much uh, the very popular Netflix program, uh, Squid Game, was a good example of this, too, mm. where it's this sort of war of there can only really be one winner, but everybody kind of goes into these factions temporarily for their own purposes. But there is there isn't. When you have these tribal ideologies, it's the thing is is that it's not actual tribalism. I, I think that the word tribalism has to be repurposed as a positive rather than a negative because I don't think what we're talking about is actual tribalism. I think it's something more sinister and self-serving. I mean, if you're being tribal, hypothetically, you're looking out for your tribe, and I just I just don't see that. I think tribalism is one of these words that has been unfortunately appropriated by the developed nations culture and it really, it, it just simply doesn't have enough definition behind it. We've talked about the uh, British philosopher Gilbert Ryle and the idea of 
category confusions and and I think that's a really good example because we simply don't really understand that idea. It it is it it's it's not even metaphorical because we we tend to think of metaphor in more concrete sort of George Lakoff terms. I, I think it's just misused, and I think it's very, very confusing because it applies down to the level of what sports teams, you know, you you cheer for, and I, I think it's it that's a real demeaning of of a brilliant and deep human idea that we should just uh, we need to find another sort of word there. It's uh, it, it's very wrong-headed, and, and it creates a lot of confusion. And I think any word that that is is really vitally important that has uh, some very vague but, but predominantly negative connotations should always be scrutinized because connotations should, you know, really should be much more open-ended if we know what we're talking about at all when it comes to complex ideas. And tribal and tribalism and all its uh, derivatives are a really good example of that problem. Absolutely, and you mentioned that you had three examples. I do, and I believe we were uh, we were doing this in in lieu of a week in doom. Yeah. So these three examples were were sort of sort of week in doom Sacknism style. Right, and what we're setting up, I I hope, is is kind of a, a fun Fortrian uh, week in uh, bizarre contradictions for the new year. This is kind of where we're going. But I did want to sort of uh, outline briefly three contradictions that are on my mind. And uh, I kind of want to get them out of the way now because I I don't know if we really want to dwell on them in the future. But I think they at least will provide listeners with an example of what we're talking about. The first is gender equality, which is one of the big topics of our time. It's just an onslaught topic. It's monolithic. It's everywhere. We are constantly encouraged to uh, de-objectify women, to look at female empowerment, to support women's uh, character, capabilities, and intellect, and not just focus on physical beauty and hotness. You know, I think everyone would really agree with that. I, I don't think that's a contentious point today. And I think a lot of intelligent people are, are trying to, to live that out. I really do. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it is an absolute fact. I'm looking at some very, very expensive media analytics. They're far more expensive than I could afford myself, I, as I think I've mentioned in the past. Some friends from my past make this possible. But this is an AI-driven media analytics crunch. And it's absolutely a fact that while we have this program of female empowerment, uh, and not just girl power and, you know, things focused on, on young females, but serious, legitimate grown women and a change in our view about that and I way beyond me too way beyond that nevertheless we are looking at more boobs and booty in mainstream media than ever before and I'm not talking any way about the porn industry or sites like fans only I'm talking about mainstream media and I think there is an enormous uh, schismatic contradiction there that uh, is is breathtaking. Actually, it's breathtaking for adults, but I think it's enormously confusing for younger people of of any 
uh, sex or gender persuasion. I think it's an, a golden example of we're, we're saying one thing and yet doing another. Uh, it's not just practice and preach. It, it, it's much deeper and weirder. Um, and the supporting argument here is the massive, intense focus on women's body image as a major go-to topic. I've had two friends who have abandoned a major cable uh, network for ethical, personal reasons because they found that this was just the go-to topic. You know, if things were a little slow or you needed to bump up your ad clicks, well, you hit it with, you know, body issues. And there's so many ways to do that. <clears throat> so that's, that's number one. The second is uh, another hot-button social topic that I, I kind of want to cover quickly and then and so we don't have to look at it too thoroughly in the, in the new year because I, I think we're kind of tired of it and I think it sort of speaks for itself. But it's racial equity. Racial equity. We are told that this is a major, major thrust and focus. And if we look at academia, which is something that I've been deeply involved with professionally, we're now looking at a situation in which major private schools, the Ivy League, other uh, major private institutions such as Stanford, but also some of our leading state universities, the California campuses, uh, they are abandoning standardized testing. Why? Because they think it disadvantages people of color. Well, there's an alternative argument which is really gaining a lot of traction and which I support thoroughly. I don't think that it disadvantages people of color at all. I think that standardized testing is very important for, for instance, Asians and East Asians who in overall statistical terms do test well. Standardized testing was never the only measure of academic admissions to these elite uh, schools, which everyone sort of worships. Uh, they were just one part of it. But now we have a program which is going to make admissions entirely subjective. We're going to put that in the hands of, of bureaucrats and administrators, you know, admissions officers, to entirely subjectively define. And this is not in the, you know, the interests of people of color. It's certainly not in the interests of African Americans or uh, the Latinx or you know, Hispanic Latino communities at all. And we have seen some really strong pushback on that during the COVID period. My uh, alma mater, Dartmouth College, uh, there was a very, very serious issue of uh, a black medical student making a real stand where he said, look, African-American students need grades, need standardized testing. We need proof of capability more than any other group. This is racist to go the other way, and it's particularly bizarre to say you're being anti-racist in doing it. So that's a real contradiction. I think we're seeing that in a lot of ways where we've now got racially segregated college and university graduations and housing. And, I mean, we're stepping back to a pre-civil rights, uh, you know, program in the name of somehow being anti-racist and progressive and it's yeah. simply not yeah. true and the pushback on this is coming from uh, peoples of color communities it's starting to really register and I think that we need to be, pay very strict attention to that because it's something that that uh, that I see very clearly that my students of color 
in the past, up to the COVID period, uh, I've stepped back because I've been working on some other projects, but they want very, very much in their hearts to compete. They want the same program of competition, meritocracy, and reward for effort and results that we see in our sports programs, which have achieved so much for people of color. So I think that's point number two. Point number three is a, a little bit closer to, to home for, for David and myself, but I think some of our listeners will really appreciate this. We're told a lot today that words matter. Words matter. Well, <laughs> professional writers can tell you they don't matter enough. You know, we're not being paid anywhere near enough that, that prices across the board, whether it be professional journalism or editing, you know, your, your, the, the sense per word or whatever, unless you're in a very rare category like Stephen King or John Grisham. But if you're a working, jobbing writer, you know, yeah. it, they haven't moved in 25 years and people expect, yeah. no, you know, something for nothing in terms of editing you know, it, it just goes on and on and on. So we have a real schism there of, well, words matter. They're really important. Well, they only matter when certain people get offended and go on Twitter and just freak out. They don't actually matter from a professional point of view. And right. I think that, that you'd agree with that, David. And I think our listeners who, uh, some of them are, are, are professional writers, know this all too well. So those are my three Absolutely. examples of, and I, I could go on and on, but, but what we're trying to do is, is sort of dispose of these topics, but suggest a look at where we're going with the first segments of, of every show coming up in the new year, where we examine just outrageous contradictions in culture, outrageous contradictions in culture. And then we look at magical, in our terms, psychic ways of healing and dealing with these crises, these contradictions, this cognitive dissonance. How can we use cognitive dissonance as a tool to rewire mm -hmm. some of this deeply divided, schismatic, uh, mind and heart rending thinking that is, is so defining of our time now? So that's, that's the pitch. Yeah. So you said a few things there. Uh, Gus really is good about chiming in right when you He's finish. He's perfect, man. Like he can't. I'm he putting can't him on the payroll, you, which is the weirdest part. Yeah, he can't hear you, so I don't. I don't know how he's doing that so perfectly. Um, but so you've said a few things there that I find really interesting. The first, the one that's the closest, obviously, to to my soul is the writer issues because i think that you and i would agree that we just pine for those halcyon days where you could make just a, a good middle class income as a writer uh which did used to exist i talked i talked recently about how a lot of writers still cling to this idea of the slush pile which is just gone right but a lot of my favorite genre writers were discovered in slush piles and they became middle-class working writers by, you know, creating pulp novels on a schedule that turned out to be classics of the genre. And that's really what we want. I personally don't have the the ambitions necessarily to be a multi-hundred millionaire like Stephen King, uh, 
I wouldn't I wouldn't sneeze at it, but you know, I don't have that ambition. But what I do want is the ability to compete in a marketplace that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. And a funny anecdote about that, a friend of mine who's very who's been very successful in the real estate business uh, hired me recently to ghostwrite a book that he uh, was working on about real estate and everything that he's learned in his journey towards becoming a millionaire himself. And we were talking on the phone. He said, man, you know, what's so interesting about this, he's like, I thought I would just do this myself. And then I started and it's really hard. <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, yeah it is for some, for some people, yeah. right? It's, uh, you know, it's maybe less hard for, for some of us than others, which is kind of how what's beautiful about human beings is that some of us are good at some things and not great at others. I can't play basketball to save my life, but I like watching the game and I appreciate that those players are paid what they're paid. Um, but, you know, I mean, like you said, writing as a skill has just been denigrated to the point that I think I think it has a lot to do with, again, with social media and the Internet and the fact that everybody writes emails for a living now and they think that that's writing, but it's it's really not. Well, you know, I think there was a decisive moment when the term content creation. Yeah, that's you the know, one. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that anyone who seriously loves language, critical thinking, and is at all attuned to any issues that can relate to the idea of the soul, know that that was uh, a turning point where suddenly a whole category of great meaning and value just got negated. Content creation, you know, fill in the box, just pump it out, you know. I mean, it makes the idea of the pulps and commercial fiction and commercial writing of the past seem like enormously high art. And you, you look back nostalgically, you know, at people like Cornell Woolrich and, you know, some people who, and, or H.P. Lovecraft, you know, I mean, suddenly that seems just like gigantically uh, accomplished. Yeah. Robert E. Howard, exactly. K. Dick. All those people yeah. seem just like genius. I mean, I think that many of them really, I think Dick was a genius, but I think we look back on a whole era there with some profound nostalgia that is entirely justified. Um, and there are some very practical sort of issues here. I mean, uh, I remember a time when I could just casually doing what I love to do of, of book reviewing for the major national newspaper in Australia. I, I could pay my rent. I could pay my rent entirely comfortably and I got free books. I, I wasn't doing anything mm -hmm. special. It was something that I would have, have loved to do, you know. It was perfectly, uh, you know, it was easy. I remember in advertising where when I, I had my own agency, but I worked, you know, um, to help a few other people. And uh, an art director friend who had his own sort of thing would assign me the, the task of coming up with a set of maybe six headlines for a morning. Well, that was, you know, that was 300 bucks worth of work. I mean, you couldn't get that now. Um, and that was, that was when that was a lot of money, actually. You know, I'm talking about a while back. So I, I think that this idea of words mattering and uh, that expression counts, 
I mean, those to me are really uh, essentially and fundamentally financial value uh, words. And I don't think that we're looking at like, you know, anything like that anymore. And I think that we can say, well, there are many factors why this has happened. There are so many people who think they can do it. Um, there are so many people who think they're wordsmiths. I absolutely hate that word. The moment I hear that word wordsmith, and oh, can you just correct the grammar? You know, it's like, right. no, actually, I can't just connect. You know, I'm not going to correct your your because you have no idea of grammar whatsoever. Uh, you have no idea right. of diction or syntax or any sort of critical thought. And you want content creation? Well, go find some other you know, dummy. You know, yeah, diction and syntax. That's those are big. Um, and I I have had jobs which I've had to take where I've just been a grammar corrector. But you and I spoke on the phone about six months ago, and you said, you know, David, you really should cut that out. That's not really your skill set. And I took your advice, and now it's great. I get paid just the same amount of money, but I'm reading novels and actually suggesting developmental and character edits instead of fixing fucking comics. Yeah, which is, you know, right. And, and, I mean... The expertise and the real insight you bring is on that higher level. And I do think this is important for anyone listening who is involved in the professional side of writing. You do have to take yourself more seriously and just ignore certain sort of offers of work, even if you're hungry for money. It's all good to be hungry and to be looking for, you know, and to be a, you know, a jack of all trades to some extent. But you do finally get the work that you deserve, I think. So that's really good. I'm glad you took that advice because you have a great deal of expertise to, as you know, you're a writer, you're a publisher, uh, and you've come at editing from, from several different points of view, including that nuts and bolts line edit sort of thing and yeah. it's not that you can't do it but it's not the best deployment of your ability you know right right exactly yeah no i um the other two that well actually before i i won't actually touch on the other two because i think you did a a good job about that but i really like this concept of using or utilizing dissonance to get to coherence that's an idea that i think will take some time to tease out but it's definitely a kind of trajectory that i've been on over probably the past five or six years and it really started when my investigations into fortrian phenomena and the occult began um particularly the this idea of adopting uh a, a kind of radical openness to potential uh, conspiracies and paranormal and cryptozoological phenomena uh, for an express purpose of of kind of you know increasing brain elasticity. I think that too many people right now are interested in what the fact checkers have to say and what the tr what you know what does Snopes have to say about this or how many Pinocchios does this politician get for what he said. Uh, but I think that that is all a coping strategy for the fact that there, there really is no objective truth anymore. If you're looking at it on the internet, it's probably been processed in some way, shape, or form. Kind of like our food, mm -hmm. you know? You can, you can get organic grass-fed beef, but that's just what's on the label. I mean, how do you know? There's a guy who sells, <laughs> sells farm-fed uh, 
farm-fed beef over on the corner, and I was buying from him, and I thought to myself, look at me, I'm buying local. And I had to have a friend explain to me, like, oh, no, that guy, he buys his stuff from Sprouts and repackages it. <laughs> like, you're, you're, getting, you're getting rolled. Yeah. <laughs> but but you, you see what I'm saying. I, I think that uh, an acceptance about the, the fundamental the fundamentally kind of fraught place that we're in right now uh, means that it might behoove people to accept some some ludicrous ideas in a kind of Robert Anton Wilson reality tunnel type of way to be able to, uh, I don't know, get a better tuning in on that, uh, on that ghost radio signal. Well, Wilson is, is, is a great uh, person to mention. He's one of our, you know, part of our pantheon of heroes. But, you know, he says it multiple times, you know, it, it's not true unless it makes you smile or what's fun may be, may be true. And I think we need to bring back that sense of fun, that sense of psychological experience. Not necessarily that everything has to be fun or make us smile, but I think we have to bear in mind that everything that we take into our heads is a psychological experience and we have some control over that. What kind of psychological experiences do you want to have? When we roll out our book club next week, we're going to be looking at the artist Robert Irwin and he really defined art in terms not of, of an artifact or something necessarily that you could touch but an experience, a psychological experience, and I think we need to look very carefully at that. We're also going to be looking at some uh, mechanisms for rejigging the cognitive dissonance program, and we've talked about some of these in terms of our practical tips. I've suggested listening to one's voice backwards, and I think that that could be expanded in, in analogy terms of looking at things backward, flipping them around, Flipping them around, flip, you know, just rejigging linearity and trying to find more dimensionality of, of experience. Um, I think that's a really sort of positive tool. Um, but to kind of close out this uh, last uh, end of year segment and to to set up where we're headed to in the new year. Uh, I'd kind of like to lay down what I think is, is one of the really giant contradictions of our time, and it will help listeners understand that although my earlier examples did have a socio-political edge, that's not really where we want to focus. We want to look much more deeply at our themes of what a new anthropology for this segment of the modern era is, and also magical psychological healing that we're not just studying and analyzing, but we're trying to come up with some ideas that might actually help what's going on. So are, are we ready to maybe look at, the, at, at a really big, chunky, meaty, gooey, swamp-like, wet topic? Gus, are you ready? He's drinking his bottle, but I think he's ready. I'm ready, okay. too. Um, I, I think one of the most profound and bizarre contradictions of our time is that we are indeed an information society. We are indeed creating more knowledge, perhaps. We're maybe losing wisdom. I think people listening can understand that phrasing. But we're certainly creating more knowledge. Uh, 
And I would argue we are exponentially creating more ignorance. And I want to bring out two sort of ideas to help support that. One is a Greek word that uh, Carl Jung put forward, anantiodromia, you know, which is something becoming its opposite. It's a little bit tricky to pronounce, and I might have just mangled that there, but I think people know what we're talking about. It's the Jungian idea of how something can become its opposite conceptually uh, and, and physically. We had some really interesting people like Lewis Carroll looking at that mathematically. We have M.C. Escher as a visual artist looking at how things turn into their opposites. It's a really, really peculiar and yet very common thing. So that may be a, a, a tool or a magical machine that we can leverage uh, on our search for coherence. But here's another model which takes us all the way back to where David and I began the series where we were looking at the notion of what can we learn from indigenous animist magical traditional cultures around the world, often living in remote situations and fundamentally resistant to uh, technologized societies. If you've ever uh, been in one of those remote, small, inherently small village communities, and you don't even have to have had that experience. I'm very fortunate to have had a couple of those, but you can, I think, empathetically and imaginatively understand what I'm about to say. When someone dies, and let's just say an older person for the sake of, of this uh, argument, there is a profound sense of grieving and mourning, which I think we can all understand. But the nature of that grieving and mourning is not just the loss of an individual or the loss of a certain person in the community. There is a piece of the cultural mosaic that has been lost or damaged or potentially lost or damaged. These, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, in many instances, uh, we'll take the Sepik River people who have a really rich art and artifact culture. It's not that they don't have tremendous extensions of story and history. They do. They have a tremendous art culture that survives them all. But when someone dies, hard memory, hard memory, this is one of our ideas that we're going to be exploring in the new year, is challenged or disappears. And that's a lot different than saying in Western terms, oh, well, so everyone has a story to tell, and I wish that I'd asked Granny about, you know, this or that. We don't mean, I mean, I'm not diminishing that. That is important, and we should all do more oral history and documenting of our relatives and family, of course. But even so, in, in Western terms, that is a very demeaned, sort of hallmark channel version of what I'm talking about in the indigenous uh, community sense, whether that be in Melanesia or Africa or many, many Native American cultures, there is a profound loss of hard memory because in that community, individuals are seen to be not just repositories, but dynamic expressions of culture. And we don't have that sense in our Western technologized societies. We don't think of ourselves mm. that way. Sure, we have our own individual stories to tell, and it's sad if we don't get to tell them. 
and write a memoir and, and get a publishing deal or whatever. But we implicitly, if not explicitly, believe that somehow our culture is off-site. It's all registered and secure in the internet and somebody will find it at one point, you know? And that's very yeah. different. That's soft memory, that's digitized memory, that's diffuse memory. It, it does have some protective qualities. It may survive, you know, sure. But it also may just disappear. And I think that we're in the midst of one of the great vanishing acts of culture that we can possibly imagine with two and a half full generations dying over the next 20 years, vanishing. That's a lot of hard memory in indigenous animus magic terms. So meanwhile, we're creating, yes, more knowledge all the time, but our standards of learning and literacy and understanding and our standards of being cultural expressions unto ourselves is disappearing. We're just simply not good expressions of culture. We are not good artifacts unto ourselves. We're very poor and dismal and kind of, uh, you know, pretty second-rate artifacts of our culture. So that's a lot to lay on you. What, what do you have to say about that? And, and Gus is welcome to chime in to help you. <clears throat> Well, <clears throat> first of all, I'm now uh, covered in vomit. There you go. So that's there good. There you go. Um, at this point, I'm used to it. It's, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, I think that that is... Okay, so the first one is the anantodromia. Yes. Is that correct? The, the Jungian concept of something turning into its direct opposite. And I think that this actually ties in perfectly with your uh, spiel earlier about racial equity and gender equality, uh, I think that what we've what we've had is, uh, you know, about twenty or thirty years of an attempt to do a thing, which is provide a more equitable and equal world for people who have been disadvantaged, and that has in fact turned into its direct opposite, and has just in a, in many ways made things worse. We've mentioned on the show before the idea that women in particular uh, might not actually have it any better. Then they had it, uh, well, <laughs> I should say very carefully in certain respects uh, uh, many years ago because now they're a part of this kind of rat race that, that men have been a part of. And we're, if, if you don't think that that rat race is necessarily a good thing, it follows that you know becoming a part of that rat race isn't the, the victory maybe that you'd hoped for. The soft versus hard memory... <sighs> I think is very compelling to me. And it reminds, I've been listening to a podcast a lot recently with uh, Tyson Yunkaporta, who is uh, an indigenous Australian who uh, talks to many people who have, you know, fun, interesting ideas about culture and indigeneity. Uh, but a big part of his book, Sand Talk, is about exactly what you're talking about, which is the kind of tactile experience of learning from an elder. Where an elder, like for example, an elder wouldn't sit you down and say, "Okay, here's how X Y Z works." A lot of it comes from, you know, carving a didgeridoo, or taking a very long walk, or singing. Right? There are things that are transmitted through these older folks that's not as simple as words on a Wikipedia page. So, I think that that is a, a really important. 
uh, kind of distinction to make. And what I would like to see in the new year is is perhaps some practical tips or even discussions that you and I can have about how to how to bring that kind of memory back. Right. Well, we will certainly be focusing on that. That's that's very important. That that is one of our promises. Absolutely, to do that, uh, and 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 to say that another way, or you know, to be better expressions of culture, and to be more confident carriers of culture that we actually understand, you know, because that's where a lot of our lack of confidence, that's where the self-esteem crisis that we see in social media comes from. People just don't feel as if they're important enough to culture because we've outsourced it and offsided it into the virtual cloud, you know? And, and we need to take back more of that and, and to be more hands-on with skills, with, with stories, with cuisine, with, with understanding, you know? To be more embodied within our culture rather than being disembodied, virtual, and feeling as if we are ghosts, you know? That, that our presence doesn't matter. Right, right. Do you want to know the invention that I'm, I found? I'm really ready. I think this is a great segue to that. So as a little bit of background, over the past hour, I've been throwing my son into the air, uh, getting vomited on, having him uh, pull my headphones out of my ear. But overall, he's been very good. He hasn't thrown a temper tantrum quite yet, although he might be gearing up for one. So my thought went to children's toys. Oh, nice. Children's, children's toys that are discovered in Antarctica. And my thought process is that we would find a toy box that dates to, oh, I don't know. Let's use the 23,000 year marker because black sand, or sorry, white sands rather is on my mind. So they carbon date it and they open it up. And what they find inside are to our knowledge, scientifically accurate stone carving dolls of dinosaurs. So this would set people's gears in motion. We think that dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago. So how did this 23,000 year old culture know that dinosaurs not only existed, but that they looked like this and that they had feathers? Uh, I think that that would be a a fun wrinkle in our current I love that. understanding of human development. I love that. And I love the setting of Antarctica, which is, you know, still I think one of the great mysterious places in the world. As a friend of mine says a you know, a remote uh, Antarctic research station. What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. Know? Right. I mean right. If, if that is the kind of place where we discover monsters like the thing or new archaeological discoveries that are impossible. I think that's lovely and I like the idea of toys. I, I was involved in a, in a dig in, in downtown Melbourne uh, which discovered a whole bunch of beautiful porcelain dolls and nothing as dramatic as what, you, what you've just expressed but some interesting variations on our, our idea of, of what the culture of the mid-19th century was, was up to. And I think that that's a wonderful idea of looking at toys. In the new year, we're going to, we will be looking at, at children's toys, games, rhymes, the whole wealth of folklore that is, is just embedded 
within traditions of, of children's uh, activities. Uh, I'm from Oakland, which was famous up until fairly recently for girls' jump rope rhymes, uh, which mm. um, very, very interesting stuff there. I mean, unfortunately, I don't know if that tradition is, is still carrying on, but it was very rich when I was a kid. So there's lots of stuff with that. This is, you know, for listeners wondering what we mean by a new anthropology, well, you know, there, there are some very old and traditional uh, anthropology disciplines which we're going to bring to the table, but hopefully tweak and look at from some new optical angles to shed some light on the profound confusion of our time. So, well, well done, David. I like that idea Excellent. a lot. And, um, Thank you. Um, the practical tip for this week is um, another thing that can be done entirely for free. Uh, it, it does not uh, require anything other than actual discipline. Um, but I call it having a seance with oneself. Um, I'm very concerned about how we have invalidated thought that simply sitting peacefully and having some thoughts in our head is in fact kind of a worry. I, I don't know if people know the Tom Waits song, What's He Building in There? You know, he's up to something mm -hmm. in his garage, you know. Well, I think one of the problems of just sitting and thinking is that we often wonder, well, what are they thinking about? You know? Um, right. And I noticed that, you know, my mom, who I think listeners um, have developed some enthusiasm for she always writes me you know going, I, I can imagine you sitting at your computer in your office humming away you know it's always kind of a, a 19th century manufacturing model you know the idea of just sitting quietly and thinking is really uh, not considered a, a good thing and I I think this is really hard for, for young people you know because when you invalidate daydreams and you know foreclose on all tree houses I'm not sure uh, what what kids have to do in the future. I, I'm concerned about that. But what I would like people to do is spend five minutes, just five minutes, at the beginning of each day, just thinking, just having that seance with yourself. Don't try to take any notes. Don't try to harvest or manufacture or salvage or you know turn that into some product just and don't meditate actually you know meditation is a different discipline I want people just to sit and think and let the mind formulate some thoughts as if you were going to perhaps write something down as if you were a content creator and were about to post you know but don't keep that to yourself but this, so this is a this is a bit more focused than than daydreaming Right. Yes, it is, but I think that come the focus there comes out of the practice of it. You know, I mm, I, I okay. think of it as having a kind. I mean, I think that well, in my practice, what it amounts to is this: I accept a certain double-mindedness in my own self, uh, which is you know a contradiction within the idea of self. But I think of it as having an internal conversation with myself that is perfectly. Every bit is val valid as having a conversation with someone else. It's just that I'm not verbalizing anything, and I appear to be sitting quietly. But I think what's really important, if you live with someone, it's very important just to present sometimes 
as just sitting there thinking. Very, very yeah. important. To go back to the idea of content creation, when I was at the McDowell Colony years ago, a writer who I really admired wrote a beautiful piece about uh, her two young sons responding to her writing, which is a very physical activity, okay? Much more physical than what I'm talking about with just sitting there thinking. But the, uh, the oldest boy said, oh, mom, that's just typing, you know? Mm. And what I'm proposing recalls the uh, that recalls the what is it? It was uh, Carol. Was it Capote or Kerouac who said that's not writing? That's yeah, Capote said that of on on the road. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. But I, I what I'm proposing is something even more uh, remote from other people's uh, perception, where your behavior is completely uh, unreadable because you're just sitting thinking, but you're making a point of doing that. If you have a partner or if you live with other people, the exercise is to make a point of doing that. And it might make people uncomfortable because they'll think, well, what are you thinking about? Well, you know, a penny yeah, that's, for that sounds thoughts, like my, you know? Yeah, that sounds like my wife. My wife's gonna be like, well, what are you thinking about? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, so, you know, I, in part the answer is you, you, you may not know. Uh, you're struggling to find a focus. The other answer is it's none of anyone's business. Uh, but the mm -hmm. deeper point here is that we have to get back to a point where thinking is seen as valid action and behavior, even if there is no clear sign of that to someone else. Because if yeah. our whole life is just what is socially visible, we're gonna be talking a lot about the invisible and intangible aspects of, of life. If the whole deal hinges on, well, what is visible and tangible and makes people feel comfortable and we know what they're doing because they're cleaning the counter or they're unloading groceries, that's not going to work. That's in conflict. That's in deep conflict with our interior psychic lives, which have to be revalidated, supported magically, beginning with ourselves. So right. that's my tip. And do we have a, do we have a, a dream? I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking we have a story this yeah, time. Yeah, I, I look, I do have some dreams, but I really, uh, I, before we get away from this holiday season, I did want to share something that actually did happen in Waking Life uh, at my local 7-Eleven, which for me is just around the corner, and it's kind of a clearinghouse nexus for a lot of, uh, very basic uh, baseline but important community uh, behavior. Well, I was in there early um, in the morning. Yesterday was very cold, very cold and clear, and the, the western mountains look like these matte paintings out of some uh, Ray Harryhausen science fiction thing. Very dramatic. And uh, there was just one guy in there at first. He's the manager, one of the managers, that I really like a lot. He's someone that no one would consider good-looking. He's short, he's bald, uh, he doesn't have a lot visually you know, going for him, but he's just a tremendous operator. He's always there at the crunch times. He knows how to do everything in the store. He knows where everything is in the store. I know from other employees that he's very respectful of them. He's just a great manager. 
He really, really is. Mm -hmm. And into this mix, well, still just so he and I are there, comes a woman who's in her mid-40s, African-American, and obviously profoundly on the mental illness spectrum, uh, somewhere in mm -hmm. the schizophrenia sort of realm. And I suspect that, that her life uh, history has some uh, pretty serious uh, drug use somewhere along the line, but uh, she would be one of our marginal people today, truly marginal, not marginalized in the media sense. I mean, someone living, you know, beside a dumpster. And um, yeah. she came in and started to, uh, uh, to steal some stuff. And she was, she was mumbling to herself. She was disorienting, disoriented, but she definitely had a, a, a kind of, you know, shoplifting program. And she was also a very large woman, powerful, and, uh, and, and clearly just not in her right mind. So we had all of the, the possible ingredients for a very serious confrontation. It could have been a physical confrontation. It certainly could have been a police incident, an arrest. It could have been a really ugly start to a beautiful, crystal clear Christmas morning. And this manager who, you know, really, he looks like sort of like George Costanza from, from uh, Jason Alexander mm -hmm. from uh, Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Uh, yeah. But a more down-to-earth version of that. Uh, what he went through was an object lesson in firmness but human compassion. Dave, you and I have sort of complained about some of the so-called liberal progressive you know, emphasis on that word kindness, which I felt is a little bit soft and kind of mushy and overused and not really defined. What he really delivered was some serious human compassion in real time, mm -hmm. in a way that cut through some serious psychological static and noise to find a signal. And it was, it was to me, it was just, it was very humbling. And it was a breathtaking example of how someone without, you know, great psychological training can step up and step in, in the moment to be exactly the message that was needed for that moment. And I wonder if that, I just, I, I walked out of that door and got into my car thinking, in the new year, wherever possible, I want to try, at least, to try to be the message that is needed on whatever level, however simple, however basic, or however uh, catastrophic and serious, you know? I want to be in time and in tune. So that's my sort of Excellent. Christmas closeout message. Fantastic. No, I love that. That's, that's great. And I think that being the message that needs to be heard resonates with me for a lot of reasons that I won't go into. But I find that to be valuable and resonant. So... I hope everybody had a Merry Christmas, and I hope that you have a Happy New Year. But before we go, we are going to be starting the book club in the new year. Gus is clearly excited he about is. it. Uh, <laughs> Chris, um, I, I'll give kind of the basics here. Uh, the course will be $25, uh, which is really a steal, considering the fact that Chris has put together uh, an actual curriculum uh, over this over this book. Uh, the title of which 
Uh, seeing is forgetting the name of the thing one sees by Lawrence Weschler. It's about the artist Robert Irwin, who did a lot of work with space and light. Uh, I think it's one of the most readable books on art that I've ever read, and I really I don't know what Chris is going to come out with, but I. Uh, I'm really excited to see what he brings to the table. So it's a total steal. Get in contact with me to do a kind of PayPal situation for that. We're going to keep it to the patrons for this. Um, and once we finish all that, I got a message from Nick. What's up, Nick, about uh, what our second book is. Uh, we will be announcing that soon after the first course. So. If I missed anything, Chris, please fill in the blanks there, and we will, uh, and then we'll sign off here. No, that's good. So the format is there's an introductory lecture, which I will do on Zoom. Then there are three interactive sessions via Zoom, so that we will do a real book club discussion, whoever's on board. Uh, I've got three uh, thematic topics, and then to close out, there'll be... Uh, summary notes and further reading suggestions. This will be the format that we'll uh, use every month and David and I will alternate in terms of, of team leading the discussions and choosing of the books. Uh, I, th I think it's going to be a really fun way. We're, we're, you know, we're very optimistic about this. We know it does take a while to grow something like this, but one of the hard parts for all of us is is having that sense of intellectual community and being on the same page. You know, that, that, that sort of cliche, but very important metaphor. Once you're outside of a school situation, it's very difficult to, to do this. So a book club provides a way of being focused on a title. We're going to have a real range of titles over the next year, different every month. But the format will be the same of an introductory Zoom lecture, three thematic discussions, and then summary notes and further reading suggestions. Excellent. Yeah, I, and I am very excited about this in particular. I have a lot of reading goals for the year, and this will definitely help towards those. So we hope to see you there uh, once again. Hope you had a Merry Christmas. Hope you have a Happy New Year. Gus wishes you the same. And uh, that'll be it for Happy me. Happy New Year, everyone. Take care. Be safe. Be safe.